We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's session, Building from Strengths, Centering Multilingual Learners' Cultures and Language Practices. Today, you'll be hearing from our speaker, Dr. Lucia Lira Herrera, author, assistant professor of bilingual education at California State University, Channel Islands, and I'll be your moderator, Dr. Giselle Carpia-Williams, Senior Director of Content and Multilingual Advancement at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And today's session is proudly sponsored by English 3D from HMH, a proven strengths-based ELD curriculum. E3D is the first and to date the only ELD curriculum to earn the WIDA Prime 2020 Seal of Alignment, and it's earned perfect scores in all review areas. Also, Language, Language Launch Volume 1, the curriculum for newcomers, was consulted with by our very own Dr. Lucia Lira Herrera, who's on this session today. So a little bit about our speakers. Luce, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Giselle. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Luz Jadira Herrera, and I am a professor of bilingual education at California State University Channel Islands. Um, I'm also the author of En Comunidad with Dr. Carla España. So it's En Comunidad, Lessons for Centering the Voices and Experiences of Bilingual Latinx Students, and also the Translanguaging Collections, Affirming Bilingual and Multilingual Learners Handbook. I'm so excited to be here with you all today. I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, and I am excited to get going. Yeah, thank you, Giselle. You're welcome. And a little bit about me. I am a lifelong educator, former New York City public school teacher, and I am the, currently the Senior Director for Content and Multilingual Advancement at HMH. Um, I taught multilingual learners for many years. I'm a multilingual learner myself taught in a dual language setting and have conducted research around multilingual learners. I'm also the proud co-chair and co-founder of our Latino ERG employee resource group at HMH. So let's get started with our session today. So, Thanks so much. So I'd like for you to all share in the chat, if you will, uh, what are some of your favorite books, some of your favorite texts to use with multilingual learners? Maybe some that you've been using for a while, maybe some that maybe that you're also excited to use. I would love to see what you've been reading with your kids or with your, with your students. I'm just gonna check in the chat and just kind of feel free to just drop in, drop in those titles. I love that everybody's putting where they're from. And thank you for reading in Comunidad, Kaylin, amazing. Um, we have people from North Carolina and of course, California, um, all over California, Puerto Rico, bienvenida uh, from the DMV. Amazing to see, thank you so much. All right, let's see what books do you have here. I see diverse. New York. <laughs> New York. So I actually started my teaching journey in New York City Public Schools. Did I was you? an ESL teacher. Yeah, I was an ESL teacher. I taught uh, kindergarten through sixth grade. So oh, that's wow. when I started, yeah. Yeah, I learned something new every day. Oh. <laughs> I 
Let's see. I see, of course. Let's see. The name jar. That's a classic. Amazing. Que mas? What else? I see lots of picture books for students to discuss what they can see. Oh, the day you begin. I love that. And it's also available in, in Spanish. El, en el día, ¿cómo se llama en español? El día en que comienzas o el, en el día... Oh my goodness, I don't even remember the title, but I'm pretty sure, hopefully you all know it, it's absolutely available in Spanish, The Day You Begin by Jacqueline Woodson. That's a beautiful book, especially for like the beginning of the school year. Thanks for sharing that, Anna. I see a well, favorite, The Hungry Caterpillar. Mm -hmm. All right, I keep on adding, but I uh, we're going to get started uh, so we can, uh, let's get the, the, with the learning. Let's see. Um, so... As I mentioned, um, I wrote En Comunidad with Dr. Carla España, my colega from Brooklyn College. Um, and in this book, we talk about critical bilingual literacies. And I wanted to share, you know, I wanted to start today's session by sharing what this means and how this informs our work. Um, and all of the content from today is really informed by this idea of critical bilingual literacies and how we can advance uh, CBL. And um, <clears throat> so I wanted to share this framework because this all, this is really about what guides our work together. And uh, CBL helps us consider the identities, literacies, and languages that we center in learning spaces. And so the first principle asks educators to commit to this ongoing self-reflection on our language ideologies and how these are often reflected in our teaching practices. So what are your ideas about language? How did those, those ideas get there? And how do they impact the way that you teach in the classroom? The second principle urges us to unlearn racialized language hierarchies that prevent us from honoring our students' dynamic language practices. The third principle asks us to examine our teaching practices and the texts that we use through a lens of language, literacy, and power to consider whose stories do we center in the classroom? Right. And so when you're thinking about, you know, the titles that you're, you know, often going back to think about how how am I centering or whose stories am I centering in the classroom? How can I be sure that um, all of my students identities or as many as possible are represented in, the, in my tech selection? Um, the language practices as well. Do they reflect the children in my classroom? Uh, and finally, as educators, of course, the fourth principle, we must celebrate our students dynamic language practices and create spaces to welcome their full selves, right? And so as, as educators, we adopt these principles to help us consider how we might enact a pedagogy that centers the dynamic multilingualism that of course is ever present in our students' worlds and school communities, while keeping justice as well as social justice at the forefront of our curriculum design and instruction. So, Luz, I love hearing about these four critical biliteracies that you highlighted and the principles, and they really caused me to reflect on my own teaching and learning, right, both as a student and as a teacher. They really are pretty eye-opening. Can you explain number two a little more for me? Yeah, absolutely. So this is about unlearning some of the notions of language hierarchies that we've internalized, perhaps unknowingly. Um, for example, um, when I I, I work with a lot of bilingual teachers that um, are teaching in English and in Spanish. And so part of the work that we do, especially at the beginning of the program, is to really unlearn their own ideas about 
their own Spanish language practice. Um, they've internalized notions that their Spanish isn't good enough or that they speak a sort of inferior type of Spanish. And so when I think about unlearning notions of linguistic supremacy is how do we categorize language varieties, even within a language like Spanish, for example, um, we attribute certain value to certain types of Spanish or certain varieties of Spanish over others. And how do we make sure that we don't do that in the classroom? Because, well, let's think about it. Like how, how are we sure or whose, whose Spanish language varieties are we marginalizing when we do that? Um, and, it's, it's important that we really center all of our students' language practices, uh, value all of their varieties of languages um, in our classrooms because they're all equally important. And so for us, that's a, that's a really key aspect of critical bilingual literacies, uh, really valuing all of our students' language practices, including the varieties of language that exist within each language. So that's, that's really important. And that's a great example because we as teachers oftentimes hold ourselves to a certain bar, right? Or try are a little bit self-critical, like you just mentioned. So how do you envision teachers would be able to apply the critical bilingual literacies across the entire school day, not just during literacy, but as you mentioned, like just in their interactions and in their modeling? How do you imagine? Uh, so I think that a really good example that I think back on is... Um, you know, there's there's more than one way to say a certain word, right? Like in Spanish, there's a word popote. Well, I call it popote. In, I speak a Mexican variety of Spanish, right? But that word has so many different, it can have so many different meanings or different variations, right? And so in El Salvador, they call it something differently. In Puerto Rico, they call it something different, right? So it's like maybe creating those spaces so students can learn from each other's varieties of, of language. Uh, we can create a class chart that sort of acknowledges all of the richness that we have in our classroom. So, and we can do that with any anything throughout the day um, and just kind of you know, have those opportunities to ask students, well, how do you, what do you call this at home? Or what does your family, you know, call this over here? And just kind of create those opportunities for children to share their language practices and, and thereby enriching all of our collective language practices. I love that. That definitely resonates because I don't use popote as a Cuban. <laughs> we use um, asobeto or sobeto. Okay. And where are you from? Can you tell yeah, my family? Cuba. I'm born American, but my family's from Cuba, but raised Cuban, yeah. you know, in America, <laughs> but raised as a Cuban. <laughs> yes. And thank you, Maria, for adding, yes, Pitilla in Colombia. Thank you for that. Absolutely. And so, um, so with the fourth principle, right, celebrating our students' dynamic language practices, it's really about translanguaging, celebrating and creating spaces for translanguaging. And I wanted to offer this definition that Carla and I love to use by Garcia and Leiva, um, which really talks about translanguaging in three ways. Uh, translanguaging is a bilingual language practice, simply the way that bilingual people, multilingual people do language, um, simply the way that we do language, our language practices. Uh, it's a pedagogy as well, because we can create specific spaces or intentional spaces in our lesson plans. We can even create translanguaging objectives to, um, to invite students to use all of their linguistic repertoires to make meaning, to make connections, um, to, you know, jot their notes in all of their language repertoires, even though you know, they might be reading something in English or something in an entirely different language, but bringing all of our linguistic repertoire to make sense of, of whatever it is that we're engaging with. 
So it's a pedagogy as well. And of course, it's uh, for social justice. And what do I mean by that? Well, when we're able to uh, remove some of those linguistic barriers that often are present in spaces like schools, when we're able to uh, welcome all of our students' linguistic repertoire without, you know, really um, um, enforcing those linguistic boundaries or barriers, when we're able to invite them to uh, bring in all of their language practices, then I think we get a little bit closer to social justice in the classroom. So it's a bilingual language practice, uh, it's a pedagogy, and it's also for social justice. I love that definition. So translanguaging has really become an important practice in the multilingual learner classroom. So here's a question that comes up a lot, and I'm curious to hear your perspective. Any tips for encouraging translanguaging when a teacher may not understand or speak the student's home language? Yeah, and this is a reality in, in so many classrooms. I'm sure that many of you um, here today can attest to this, right? Uh, when I was an ESL teacher in New York City, you can imagine how many languages I had in my classroom, right? I mean, I had up to nine, 10 languages at a time. And so you don't have to speak your students' languages. You don't have to share their, their same language practice. Uh, does it help? Absolutely, of course. But uh, when you don't, then you have to um, invite them to show up as a language expert of their own community language practices that they are. Uh, create spaces for them to, you know, remind them, oh, you know, you can please, well, you know, you're feel free or you're welcome to to use all of your language practices when you're reading this text and jotting down notes um, to help, you know, remember some of the, the main points or some of the connections that you're seeing throughout. Uh, you're welcome to use all of your languages with each other, especially if there's a language partner in this, you know, in the in the classroom with each other. So you can discuss uh, together um, using all your language practices to make meaning of what you're learning here, uh, to make sense of what you're learning here. So really, it's about inviting students to use all of their languages and you don't have to speak those students' languages uh, to do that. And there's a really amazing webinar, um, if you're interested in checking this out, through CUNY NICIB, which is a New York State initiative on emergent bilinguals, uh, which I was a part of. And we created a webinar series exactly that addresses that question, Giselle, which is how do I engage in translanguaging pedagogy when I don't share my students' languages? And you can see all kinds of examples there of how to do that. So CUNY NICIB, um, NY. S-I-E-B. Sounds like a must listen. Thanks, Giselle. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, critical bilingual literacies, which I shared before, have led Carla and I uh, to develop a framework for teaching and learning around what we call the three T's, temas, textos, and translanguaging, which we feature in Comunidad and in Comunidad. And of course, TEMAS refers to planning topics that are culturally and linguistically sustaining for our students, our particular students, right? Um, textos are those multimodal texts um, adopted in our lesson plans that communicate solidarity with the youth, with the children in our classrooms, um, that really affirms their ways of being and knowing. So really thinking about intentionality of our text selection. How are they representing the students in our classrooms, right? Are they uh, reflecting those experiences, those language practices? Um, and finally, the last T refers to the intentional creation of translanguaging spaces, as I mentioned before, uh, for students, right, to, 
to have them bring all of their uh, linguistic, their entire linguistic repertoire um, and engage in dynamic language practices in the classroom. And so the three T's can guide us in planning for meaningful instruction that centers our multilingual students' lives and everyday experiences. And so we're going to actually take a look at what this looks like for the various sort of grade spans. So I have some examples from for elementary, for middle grade, and for high school settings. So hope that helps to kind of really see what this can look like in practice. Sounds oh, great. So um, if we want to think about a topic, a tema, like identity and community, for instance, um, some of the books that you might want to, you know, sort of curate to talk about, you know, one aspect of identity and community uh, could be Dreamers, of course, the classic by Juji Morales, My Two Border Towns by David Bowles. Um, it could be My Papi Has a Motorcycle, one of my favorite books of all time. Um, it could be Octopus Stew. Um, it could be, I mean, all, any of these books and all of these together will help us advance our understanding of identity and community. And the reason why uh, Carla and I have curated the specific text set is because it really sort of paints um, a complex and nuanced picture of specifically this one is Latine identity and community. And so we get the various Latine voices in, you know, in this text selection. We get, for example, the border identity with my two border towns. We get, uh, we learn from a Nicaraguan community fighting for housing justice and Alejandria fights back, which is a bilingual picture book. We see um, a Latina family in Southern California that's sort of seeing the change in their community uh, with My Papi Has a Motorcycle. Mm -hmm. um, we see this Puerto Rican family coming together to uh, really pour into these, this young girl who is feeling a bit disconnected from herself and from her, her roots and in Beauty Woke by Nonia Garramos. And so all of these picture books together, or all of these stories together can help us understand this um, identity community of this community and just to see, you know, the, the varied experiences that exist. And of course, it's not all encompassing, obviously, right? But it's definitely a, an amazing start. And um, in terms of translanguaging, we can be intentional about, for example, all of these books actually have have translanguaging in the text. So uh, we can analyze the translanguaging in the text, right? We can ask students to notice the ways that the author uses language and the purpose. We can think about um, how they can um, engage with a language study with any of these texts so that it informs their writing. And we're actually gonna see an example of that with My Papi Has a Motorcycle. Um, and so, and of course, whenever you're inviting students to engage in translanguaging, all you, all you really have to do is just, you know, turn to your partner with your group, use all of your linguistic repertoire to think about, like, you know, talk about these guiding questions that I've prepared or uh, consider some of the major themes or whatever it might be that you want to focus on for that day. That's really, it's really about creating that space and invitation for them to, to bring all of their linguistic repertoire. I love how you said creating the space, right? And the invitation, rather than being told, you're inviting just the language you're using. Is. So, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, maybe some children might not want to, right? And so it's good to have that option. It's always great to have options. And so I want to kind of zoom in on one example for the elementary um, tech set. And as I mentioned, um, 
I want to zoom in on my puppy has a motorcycle and and in comunidad, uh, Carla and I talk about what we call a reading in community, and a reading in community is really about it's it's a read aloud, but it's a read aloud 2.0 in the sense that. How do we create opportunities for, for readers, for children, right, to really engage with the text, to, um, to make meaning with the text, right, in community? And so that's what this is all about. And so there's three parts to it. Uh, there's a setup and introduction. There's the reading and community part. Um, and we're going to go through each of these. And then the, there's the discussion and respond section. So, um, of course, like a typical read aloud, we would set up and introduce in a very similar way. So we might, of course, want to introduce the author, do a focus, focus on the author and the illustrator. Uh, we can focus on the topic. So what are some of the relevant themes that we see in this text that are maybe sort of planning to, to you know, for students to, to focus on and pay attention to? Uh, maybe make some connections to whatever literacy units that you've studied. Um, so maybe we can make those connections as well. Um, and then the actual reading and community is really about selecting strategic passages that we want students to be able to read together in community. So what are the lines, for example, that feature this dynamic language use, right? Like translanguaging. Um, what are some lines that really talk about or really uh, zoom in on the theme that you want to highlight for, you know, for that lesson? So it's really about being strategic with the passages. And I'll, I'll give you an example shortly. And then finally, for the discussion and response, um, how can you make meaning together specifically on identity, on language, on relationships between the characters, on the themes, um, along with the illustrations, right? What, what else do students want to talk about, right? Do we think about uh, how we can also give students a choice to to respond how they'd like to um, to respond because perhaps they've you know they can think about something that we haven't previously thought about or come up with in our lesson plan. So student choice is really important here as well, and as well as an artistic response, right? How can we create spaces for our students to respond to any text in an artistic way, and that could be, I mean, from a drawing to poetry to to really anything. So um, let's see, we're gonna just read a couple of pages from my puppy has a motorcycle so I can show you what this can look like in action or in practice. Uh, and it's available in Spanish as well. Mi papi tiene una moto. So I'm just going to... My puppy has a motorcycle. From him, I've learned words like carburetor and cariño, drill and dedication. When I hear his gray truck pull into our driveway, I run outside with both of our helmets. Thump, thump. My puppy, the carpenter, is covered in sawdust and smells like a hard day at work. His hands are rough from building homes every day, his job since he first arrived in this country. But even though he comes home tired, he always has time for me. When our city is winding down, he takes me for a ride. Today, he's going to show me the new houses he's working on. Papi is careful with my ponytail as he pulls my helmet tight. When he lifts me onto the smooth black seat, his hands don't feel rough. They don't feel tired. They feel like all the love he has trouble saying. Lista? Si. Papi revs the engine and the smell of gasoline hits me as he squeezes the accelerator. The motor rumbles and growls and then we take off. Con cuidado, be careful. Agarrate. Hold on. Vroom. 
So, um, and I hope if you don't know this book, so it goes on and uh, the father and daughter go on this ride throughout the city um, and they look at all of the things that um, have changed, right? There's a lot of change happening in this community. Uh, they consider all of the things that are changing. Um, they see some businesses have closed down, but they also see, you know, the library that they go to and they see their librarian or the librarian that they that they often go to or the stores that they go, that they go to. Um, they see uh, remnants of the history of the town. There used to be a large uh, farming community. And so they reflect on all of this, those changes. But at the end, they talk about, well, you know, some things will never change, of course. And that is the love that we have for each other. So it's it's a beautiful text. But so um, <laughs> relatable, right? I mean, who, who can't relate to that scenario of Papi coming home? Very Absolutely. relatable. So uh, to set up and introduce this text, you know, you might want to read more about Isabel Quintero and you might know that um, Isabel Quintero is from Southern California. So this book is semi-autobiographical. We might want to read, you know, some of the, auth um, the author, I'm sorry, the illustrator's uh, work and see um, their style across and maybe just learn about their other work and things, you know, have opportunities to really meet the illustrator and the author. We can think about, of course, doing a preview, which is very common with read alouds, right? Or focus on the book cover and think about what students um, can tell us about what it could be about, what this book could be about. And then, of course, for the reading community piece, which is, you know, really the heart of this is what are some of those lines that feature these dynamic language practices, right? And what are some of the observations that you can uh, zoom in on that um, can help us focus on the themes or really pay attention to those themes uh, or the relationships, you know, that we see, especially here in this case, we see this relationship between a father and daughter, right? And so we might want to reread those specific lines or those power lines. So for example, my papi has a motorcycle, right? From him, I've learned words like carburetor and cariño, drill and dedication, like that is a, such an important line, um, not only because it features that dynamic language use that the author uses throughout the text, but we learned so much about what this book is going to be about and about the themes of the book as well. Um, and then for the, the discussion and response, we want to try to think about um, really focusing in on for perhaps on identity, right? So what are some of the aspects of identity that we see revealed across the text? Or maybe on relationship, what are the connections that we see in this story between uh, father and daughter? Perhaps we can zoom in on the way that the father um, shows, but ne not necessarily expresses verbally, right? Love. Uh, we might focus on language. How do you notice how the author uses language in the storytelling? What do you think it does for the storytelling? What would be the difference or what would be different if the author only wrote entirely in one language? What would change, right? Um, and so uh, for an artistic response, an example could be what are some you know, opportunities for students to write their own narratives or poetry using this as a mentor text. Maybe they can create their own collage um, that expresses any connections to the themes that you'd like to focus on. So it's really about creating those uh, really powerful uh, opportunities for students to really engage with the text um, and think, you know, deeply about the different themes and the different layers of it, like the relationships, you know, the, the language we use, the, the, um, the illustrations. And um, to dig even a little bit deeper with this, especially, you know, for multilingual, multilingual learners and really for any student, 
uh, we can use uh, a language study opportunity here with this text. So we can, um, as educators, we can take excerpts from books, powerful excerpts, and we can think about, well, how can we? I create an opportunity for students to um, think about, right? You know, this author's craft and uh, think about the implications of it. So, for example. Um, I would want to identify this very first line that I read, right? So from him, I've learned words like carburetor and cariño, drill and dedication. And of course, you know, if we ask, you know, uh, the students, what are you, what do you observe? What do you think stands out to you from this extra, from this line? They're probably going to say, well, there's a word in Spanish right in the middle, right? In the, in, in the middle of this sentence in English. And so what does this mean for my writing? Well, it kind of tells me that I can also express myself by using all of the languages or all of my linguistic repertoire in my writing, right? So I can also express myself using all of my, my uh, words in different settings, for, for example, or a specific setting. Um, maybe a different excerpt. And here, you know, the illustrations by Sik Peña, like all of these, um, you know, sort of the dialogue, right, that happens or the, what do you call it, the Oh my gosh, I'm losing. I'm losing my words. But you know, the, <laughs> the dialogue bubbles. Yeah, the, the, the speech bubbles, right? All of these is right there. The speech bubbles um, have, of course. What are students going to notice? Agarrate, hold on, con cuidado, be careful. The dialogue is in Spanish and in English, right? So again, I can also. Uh, what do I learn from my writing? Like I can also. Um, include these speech bubbles in my own, you know, stories that um, that show how these how my characters communicate authentically. So that's something that you know those are sort of the takeaways. And Luz, um, I can imagine, even though this is in Spanish, this also gives the freedom for students who maybe are not Spanish speakers but are translanguaging in other languages that they could do the same thing too in their language. So it's almost like you're giving an example, but just because it's not Spanish, that's your language. You could still do this, right? Just not, it would be in a different language, but it still opens the door. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. And, you know, of course, um, all of these examples have Spanish English for us because our work specifically focuses on Latine children's literature. Um, and and I, I prepare future bilingual Spanish English teachers. And so all my examples are focused on that. But absolutely, this is just an example. And you can of course, welcome all of your students' languages in, in their writing, hopefully, and in other spaces, in all, in all of the spaces, to be honest. So thanks for that reminder. So I have uh, another example, but I want you all in the chat to help me out with this one, um, and we can think through it together. So I could envision this being sort of some sort of an anchor chart where it's sort of a three columns, right? And so... Um, in one column, you would really identify this mentor text or this excerpt that, you know, you want that exemplifies some sort of uh, writing practice that you want your, your students to be able to, to try out, right? Uh, so you might want to choose that book excerpt and then leave space for their, any of their observations and then leave space for them to think about implications for their writing. So we're going to try this out together. Um, so the line is... We cruise by Abuelito and Abuelita's old yellow house, the one with the lemon tree that grew from the seeds of the lemons Abuelito used to pick not far from here. Mommy says we're going to visit them tomorrow to cut nopales from their garden and eat herby albondigas in Abuelita's kitchen, where the food always tastes better. 
right? So that's the line or that's the excerpt. What are your observations of this? What do we learn about language, about culture, anything? What do you take from this excerpt? So add in the chat and then we'll go from there. Hope, thank you for adding. Uh, yes, yeah, so the fluidity of language, the importance of family, food connections to the past, traditions, and the now, sensory detail, right? So much just in this few, I mean, in these few lines. Even the subliminal food and Latin culture, right? Just Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, use some of the words in Spanish. It makes sense if, even if not fluent in Spanish. Thank you for adding that, Jennifer, right? And that's really important. And, you know, um, author, the amazing author, Newberry Medal winner, Meg Medina, always talks about this. She's actually a Cuban-American um, author, Meg Medina. Uh, she always says, you know, I trust my readers to be able to understand my words. I don't have to translate everything. I trust that they will uh, look at the entire story and understand what I'm writing, you know, and, and I think that's beautiful. All right. Thanks for all. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, we learned so much from this, from rich uh, children's literature. We learn about the nuances of, 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 of culture, right? We, we learn about this family's history. We mm -hmm. learn about um, their traditions. Um, I would never say I'm going to go eat um, Nepales, what is Nepales? Cactus. I'm never gonna. I would never say I'm gonna go eat cactus. You know, my mom's gonna make cactus because she mm -hmm. she does make that. But I would never say that. I would say we're gonna go eat nopales. We would never say it in English because it's not in our vocabulary in English, right? Even though I know the translation, I know the word for nopales in English. I would never call it that. So I would never write that in my own book, of course. So um, yeah. So I would definitely, I would definitely write that down. So in my writing, right? What is? How does this inform my writing? Well, it tells me that I can also give clues as to, you know, if you're writing from, you know, a memoir or if writing some sort of narrative or if you're writing, you know, characters, you can construct characters thinking about like giving them depth and layered, right? Um, how can you also include these clues from their histories, from their traditions, from the foods that they eat? What are the connections that you can make um, that would really enrich, you know, the writing? And this is an amazing, an amazing example, just again, in these few lines. So thank you. So I hope you try it out with any book. And to your point, there are some words that students, aside from nopales, just may feel like just does not sound right, even if they know it in English. Some children might even feel like abuela, right? To call their grandmother abuela would be like, just, I know it, but it's not right. So giving them the freedom to use the right word, even if it's not in the language. Of right. Basic. Yeah. Absolutely. Or like the same thing, like albondigas, right? It's, it's right. a ball, it but. Is but right? It's kind of. It's a specific thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for going along. Thank you for chiming in in the chat. Thank you so much, Giselle, too, for chiming in. So uh, I'm not going to go as in depth for the middle grade um, example or for the high school example, but I did want to um, give you sort of an overview of what it could look like with the three T's with the middle grade uh, example or with the middle grades. And so similarly, if we wanted to study a topic like the same identity and community, right? Um, broadly speaking, I mean, these are all, this is all a collection of Latina focused books. Um, 
And this really paints a really, you know, important and diverse picture of Latina communities, because of course, this is not a monolith, right? There's so many varied experiences, and these help us understand some of those experiences. Um, I actually had a chance to to uh, review Mexican before it was published because I wrote the educator's guide for it. And it's a beautiful uh, graphic memoir by Pedro Martin. And it's such a I was sending screenshots to my to my siblings all throughout. I was like, oh, my gosh, look at this. This is exactly what we did, you know, like it, and it's a graphic uh, formats, right? So graphic novel, memoir format. It's so beautiful. And my son, who is in fourth grade, was so um, sort of drawn to it because he loves comic books. Yeah. And so I really recommend checking that out. But it uh, depicts a family growing up in California, Mexican-American family who um, have ties to Mexico and they travel uh, to Mexico in their big RV um, to go pick up their grandfather who's coming to live with them for, for a while. And so uh, that, you know, the road trip, it sort of details the entire road trip. And I was only sending my siblings all of that because it's like, it absolutely, um, it's like a mirror to my own experiences growing up, uh, taking that road trip, almost the exact same route from California down to the central West coast of Mexico. So it's so beautiful to see that representation. I get, you know, as an adult, gets even so, so excited. So I can't imagine having it as a kid, you know, it, it would have been wonderful. Awesome. Um, Pilar Ramirez uh, tells us, tells us a bit, or tells us a lot actually about Dominican uh, culture, Dominican American um, author Julian Randall. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful. It's a different novel. It's a fantasy. Uh, it's a fantasy fiction piece, and it's. I actually just finished reading it with my. Uh, he's now in fourth grade with my son, and he loved it. It was a very exciting adventure, adventure filled. But you also learn history, so you learn about Dominican history, specifically the history of the di dictatorship, um, and so Pilar Ramirez. She is sort of sucked into this fantasy world of Safa, this island, where there's this dictator who is, you know, represented by this monster. And so her, you know, her mission is to free all of those people who have disappeared or who were disappeared. And so we learn about that part of history, uh, which is important for us all to know. And so, but also through this sort of epic adventure tale. So definitely recommend that. And um all of these beautifully tell like uh, just this rich uh, picture of Latina experiences. And of course, They Call Me Huero is one of my favorites, uh, which talks about border identity. And we're, we're actually going to delve a little bit into that one um, shortly. And uh, yeah, go ahead. lots of comments about how awesome the resources are and the books and how appreciative everybody is. I wanted to throw in even using the word huero, for non-Mexican students learning what that means, right? Because it, like you mentioned, the, the students in the classroom, even if they all are Spanish speaking, are not a monolith and starting to understand more about the cultures, the nopales, the word, all those different idiosyncrasies, I, I, or I don't know if that's the right word, but you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> the little differences, it's, it's learning within learning, right? Almost like that may not even be part of the lesson and it's part of the lesson. That's exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think my son realized that he was, for example, learning about, you know, Dominican history of the, you know, specifically the dictatorship yeah. period <clears throat> when right. we were reading Ramirez, you know. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, 
Okay, so we're gonna, um, and similarly, we can support translanguaging by, you know, asking students or inviting them to to use all of their linguistic repertoire um, when they're making these connections with the text, when they're annotating, you know, sort of in using sticky notes or whatnot, um, to analyze the way that the authors use translanguaging. All of these authors use translanguaging in these texts, and uh, and we're going to see an example. So this is. Um, the so they call me Guero or Medicin Guero in Spanish, uh, by David Bowles. It is a novel in verse, and then there's a, a second one. Um, they call her Fregona, so that's the second iteration. Um, so the very first poem in this novel in verse is Border Kid, and so um, I want to read this poem for you so that we can think about well, what would a reading community? of just one poem. So it doesn't have to be an entire text, right? We can just do a reading community of just one poem um, look like for a poem like Border Kid. But first I want to um, I want to read it for you. And there's also the Spanish version on the side Chao de la Frontera. So it goes. It's fun to be a border, it's fun to be a border kid, to wake up early Saturdays and cross the bridge to Mexico with my dad. The town's like a mirror twin of our own, with Spanish spoken everywhere, just the same, but English mostly missing till it pops up like grains of sugar on a chili pepper. We have breakfast in our favorite restaurant. Dad sips café de olla while I drink chocolate. Then we walk down uneven sidewalks, chatting with strangers and friends in both languages. Later, we load our car with Mexican Cokes and Joya avocados and cheese, tasty reminders of our roots. Waiting in line at the bridge though, my smile fades. The border fence stands tall and ugly, invading the Carrizo at the river's edge. Dad sees me staring, puts his hand on my shoulder. Don't worry, mijo, you're a border kid, a foot on either bank. Your ancestors cross this river a thousand times. No wall, no matter how tall, can stop your heritage from flowing like the Rio Grande itself. So it's such, such a beautiful poem, and I love it every time I read it. And it's, again, the very first poem of this novel in verse, They Call Me Guero. And the Spanish version, it's called Chavo La Frontera. And David Bowles talks about like the, the intentionality behind the translanguaging. So you, Oftentimes, books in Spanish, we don't see a whole lot of translanguaging, but we do with David Bowles' work. Um, most of the translanguaging happens in the mostly, you know, quote-unquote English version in, in most cases. So uh, how would I set up and introduce, you know, this poem or this text, right? So maybe we can think about introducing the author, such a prolific author, right? Uh, and that actually, by the way, a connection that I just realized is this is the same Illustrator that designed the Guero cover is Sik Peña, who was the illustrator for My Papi Has a Motorcycle. So that's that's a connection right there, actually. Um, so uh, I might want to show the book uh, a book preview. I want to do a book preview so that we can see the format, right? It might be different for some students. Maybe students um, haven't read like a novel in verse. Um, maybe we can think about, you know, saying why you chose to read this book in community. Perhaps you might want to share the connections that you might have perhaps with border identity or with um, other types of identities that, that are um, related to, to any of the characters in the text. Um, and then for the reading community piece, maybe we can pick those, you know, those specific 
um, focal lines for, it's fun to be a border kid. So we have breakfast in our favorite restaurant. So really pay attention to some of the themes that come through, some of the dynamic language practices that come through in these specific lines. And again, like think about what it means as a writer. So always thinking of opportunities to, to study author's craft so that you can, um, you know, bring this to your students so that they can in turn um, put these in practice for their own writing or their own, you know, whatever they produce. And so for the discussion and respond piece, we, went, we might want to focus on identity, right? So the protagonist, Guido, here describes himself as a border kid. Uh, perhaps students can think about how they might describe themselves, right? Um, they might want to use the very first line in the stanza as a mentor text for their write, their, writing their own identity poem, right? So that first line, remember, it's, it's fun to be a border kid, to wake up early Saturdays, right, and cross the bridge. So that could be a great mentor text for your, you know, for your student's identity poem. Um, you can think about a focus on language. So how does the author use Spanish in this case? Um, what does it do for the for the poet, you know, for the poem? Um, what, you know, what can it teach you about what you can do for your in your own identity poem or the kids identity poem, right? They can also be encouraged or invited to use all of their linguistic repertoire in their poetry writing. And um, similarly, like I shared with a language study with um, my puppy has a motorcycle, we can think about in this, in this book we have, or in this, even in this poem alone, we have all of these specific lines or important lines, you know, that sips cafe de olla while I drink chocolate. Um, students are going to observe or automatically, you know, right away point out, cafe de olla, chocolate, restaurant, although chocolate is a, is a, a what is it called? It, you can pronounce it chocolate or chocolate, right? It's a cognate, of course. So, but um, but but David does read it as chocolate, so that's how I read it too. <laughs> but uh, you can think about those things together, and again, you can think about the implications for my writing, right? So I can also think about the places, the foods that I think and experience in my home language, and make sure that those are represented in my writing. Uh, think about my connections to specific memories and how I can communicate those. I can consider my language practices and how they're tied to specific places and use all of that to to um, in my writing so that it's you know authentic to me. So um, so yeah. So hopefully this is helpful and um, yeah. It's, I love the cognate, right? Because it gives the freedom, like you said, if you pronounce it chocolate, if you pronounce it chocolate. It gives that little wiggle room almost to play with language. So you're teaching that writing skill of playing with your language in addition to the translanguaging. It's pretty cool how you see everything start to layer on each other through the instruction. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Giselle. And then just as a last example for the middle grade uh, portion is... Um, we can think about engaging in a in a language study that focuses on the translation, especially if you have, you know, in a bilingual setting, this might be a really useful tool or practice um, to study translations and think about, well, you know, why do you think the author made these choices? This was written first in, in English or mostly in English, as we see on the on the right. Um, and then the Spanish version, Medi Senguero, came out later. Um, but we can think about, well, why do you think the author made these choices? Uh, what would you have done differently? And we can also think about all of the different language varieties um, that we can explore th even through that first lesson or through that lesson alone. 
for example, you know, Chavo de la Frontera. There's so many different ways to say kid in Spanish, right? Chavo. I mean, what are some, I mean, drop in the chat if you have any other way to say chavo or no kid in Spanish. Or it's fun to be a border kid. He said, que chido ser chavo de, you know, de la frontera. Chido is such a Mexican, like, word, you know? So it could be que padre, que chévere, uh, que buena onda, que chimba in Colombia. You know what I mean? So there's so many different ways. Nene, chico, for for Absolutely. Yeah. So there's so many different ways that this could have gone. But who is he writing about? Right. He's writing specifically a character who is a border kid in the border of Texas and Mexico. So he's going to write like that kid speaks. Right. He's going to make that decision as an author. So it's important for children to kind of understand, like, what are the decisions that the authors are making and why they're very intentional. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I'm creating a character from, you know, specific region, make sure that's representative in, in their, you know, the way they, they talk and the way they, they move, right? <laughs> that's such a great point. Such a great, because people forget that sometimes, right? That when you translate it, they, you stick to your lens, but is that the lens of the character? Such a great point. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. So finally, to wrap up, just a high school example, and I'm not going to go too deeply into an example, but just kind of give you the three T's overview. And we're going to have a bit of time for some Q&A. Um, so same topic, identity and community. All of these texts, again, have a wide representation of Latine, and all of these specifically focus on, on um, a, you know, Latina character. So we have Margo Sanchez, we have Gabi, we have... Julia in I'm not your perf uh, perfect Mexican daughter. We have uh, the poet X. We have a Dominican American uh, teen, Juliet Respira Profunda. We have a Puerto Rican or New Rican teen. I'm not your perfect Mexican daughter. Julia is a Mexican American teen. So we have a wide representation that's very intentional. Um, and again, we can think about supporting translanguaging spaces by inviting students to discuss, to annotate using all of their linguistic repertoire. They can analyze translanguaging in the text. And again, all of these texts in English have translanguaging throughout. They can also play with language use in their own drafts as they write their own memoirs. So these are amazing mentor texts to have. And, um, and lastly, just as a reminder, we can create translanguaging spaces in all kinds of ways, right? And that happens at various levels. It happens individually. So if I'm reading anything that I'm interacting with, whether it's in English or all in Spanish, I'm going to bring all of my linguistic repertoire to make meaning of this content that I'm engaging with. So that never stops, right? That's always happening. And Ofelia Garcia, uh, my mentor, uh, writes about this, right? So this is some of the latest things that she's writing about or she has been writing about. So uh, an emergent bilingual child is going to show up with all of their linguistic repertoire to make meaning of any content that they're presented with. So they're doing this at the, in, at the individual level um, internally. Uh, translanguaging ha can happen when you're interacting with any text and content, as I said, right? It can happen among peers, especially when we're inviting students to share with a partner, especially if it's a language-like partner, that would be special, especially helpful because they can use all of their linguistic repertoire to make meaning together. It could be student-led or also teacher-led when you're inviting these translanguaging spaces to occur. It happens, of course, with our communities. 
Um, and of course, translanguaging spaces can happen with the mentor texts that we that we can study and focus in on, like for example, the word choices or the, the decisions that the authors make. So yeah. Um, and just wanted to leave you with some recommendations for texts. I always, you know, Carla and I always love to recommend books. Uh, these are some recommendations for poetry, uh, picture books. And I know that you're going to have access to the slide deck, so I'll keep moving as well. And then this is a um, recommendation for poetry for middle grades. But I think you can also use this even for, for fifth grade as well. I think so. And then some of our recommendations for high school. When We Make It is the latest one. Wonderful novel and verse by Elisa Velasquez. So definitely check that out. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, Luz, thank you. That was, the feedback is amazing. Hearing from everybody on the side, if you get a chance to peek at the chat, you're going to see tons and tons of Love the text. Thank you. Can we see a list of the text? Do we have question, uh, sample questions? So um, now is a question and answer part. I'm going to ask, ask you a couple of the questions I see here in the chat. Um, I see what options for helping read other language in multilingual classes besides having students do so? Are there other options besides having the students read it? Hmm. I'm not sure that I understand your question. The question. Can you um, ask it again or rephrase it? That question. Repeat it again. What options for helping? This is from Jaylene Gunderson. What options for helping read other languages in multilingual classes besides having students do so? So it sounds like instead of just having the students read the other language, what other options do we have as instructors? for having students read in other languages if maybe we don't read that language ourselves? I mean, we have we have so many different resources that are you know available to us. I think about, honestly, like YouTube is a big one. I'm teaching a class um, on children's literature right now with my, in, in my university. And um, one of the things that, so what we're doing is we are each selecting like different there's a list that, that they can choose from depending on the theme for the week or, you know, for a couple of weeks. Um, and YouTube is such an amazing resource, especially during the pandemic. Um, a lot of publishers gave permissions for authors to, you know, to read, to do read alouds. And so I'm sure that we can find all kinds of read alouds in different languages on YouTube, for example, and also texts that are going to be available as an ebook. A lot of the times, um, um, so like your library can have access to those um, audio books. And so that's another another resource that we might be able to tap into as well. And Luz, you're right on target because Jaylene came back and said pronunciation if issues, if not mine. So you're right on target with the <laughs> examples you're giving. Um, I don't see any more questions, just a lot of comments about thank you. Um, you know, questions around can we drop links for the webinar that you mentioned from CUNY? Um, can we oh. um, can we drop um, book lists? But it looks like um, everyone will have access to this PowerPoint. Um, another question: logistical titles of the books, which will be in the slides. Um, and that's what I'm seeing as far as questions. Yeah, I will drop in the chat um, the link that I was talking about. 
Um, and there's so many different resources there, but you can find translanguaging guides, a ton of translanguaging resource, and that the webinar that I was mentioning. So I will drop that in the chat. And another question is when will we have access to the PowerPoint? I believe it's right after the session, if not already. Okay. And questions around, um, you know, people saying, thank you, can't wait to try some of the ways of translanguaging. Um, people sharing tips with each other in the chat. <laughs> um, certificates will come after the session as well. Um, a lot of muchas gracias. Um, yeah, just, I wanted to add one more link as well. I mean, Carla and I have our website and comunidadcollective.com. So I'm going to add it in the chat as well. And there's a resources tab where you can, um, you know, access a lot of the some podcasts, um, other presentations, um, other webinars, for example. So yeah. a lot of it is already there. I think I'm probably due for updating it pretty soon, but I think it's mostly updated. So you're being hard on yourself. I can vouch for the Instagram and for the website and all fabulous and amazing and a wealth of resources. So, so much. So much. Well, thank you all for joining us from you know so many different parts. Um, of the country. Um, so wonderful to see that, you know, you're all engaged here and that you're um, interested in translanguaging and in translanguaging pedagogy and, of course, in using children's literature. So um, thank you so much for, for your engagement and for being here and look forward to connecting with you in other, in other opportunities. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.